morning, everybody. Welcome to the Mind Walk podcast once again, which uh, myself, Jean de Roux, host with MP Stradom. Uh, this is a continuation of the discussions around the winners of our value papers. This was introduced in the previous weeks. Today, we are talking to the Australian team. Uh, good morning, MP. Morning, John. It's great to be with you again, and thanks for all of our uh, podcast subscribers and, and and maybe first time guests that are listening. Uh, we really appreciate everyone who, uh, who listens to our podcast. And we also want to remind you, uh, everyone, by the way, uh, to subscribe and click on those like buttons. It, it really helps to get the message out for us as well. You sound like a YouTuber now, MP. <laughs> <laughs> I do my best, so, you know, but... <laughs> to uh, refresh your mind around the value papers, when lockdown came as part of motivating people to, uh, to focus deeply, our CEO, uh, Peter Nell, together with MP, launched this uh, value paper competition. We had, ran the competition over four weeks plus. All the regions of MinRP contributed from Australia to Chile to South Africa and Canada. We had 23 papers that were submitted. Uh, they were around, uh, around what MinRP product can be used for and how you can derive value from it. We had four winners for the four weeks and the uh, authors of uh, the paper that we are discussing today were the winners of uh, week three. Good morning, Yulandi, Hanna, Adrian. Uh, let's start with Hanna. Hanna, introduce yourself, please. Yeah. Hi, John. It's um, great to be here and MP as well. Just a little bit about me. I grew up in the Adelaide Hills, qualified as a geologist from the University of Adelaide. Started my career in the mining sector at the Geological Survey of Queensland in the minerals team. We worked on exploration attraction where we promoted new areas for mineral exploration in Queensland. And I also got to be a part of the Coastal Geothermal Initiative drilling for hot rocks, which was quite interesting. I then took a secondment to the resource planning team where I worked in tenement administration, land conservation and tenure assessments. I moved into the private sector next and worked for a mid-tier copper gold operation as an exploration geologist. And I was involved in target generation, drill hole planning and digitization, along with some research and analysis of geophysics and other imagery. I then moved west to work for a junior copper gold operation in the Pilbara, where I researched and planned new drilling projects as well. I started with MineRP in 2013 as an enterprise consultant, and I've been involved in both planning and execution phases of implementation projects, both locally in Australia and abroad. And in this position, I have gained exposure to a diverse range of projects and clients. Wow, so you are qualified to have contributed to the paper. No wonder you guys have won, hey, MP? <laughs> Absolutely. I'm, I'm listening to that. Uh, it reminds me of a question that, that we got asked by a mining executive a few weeks ago. Uh, he said, where do you find these people that work for MineRP? <laughs> because you've got excellent, excellent people. Uh, Hannah, what the background. Yeah. yeah. Yes, and you have survived. Adrian, uh, in the time when you learned about MineRP, we'll introduce Adrian in a minute. Let's get to Yulandi. Yulandi, you're also no stranger to MinRP. Uh, yes. Good morning, uh, Jean and MP. 
Yep, so my background is actually, I come from South Africa. I now live in Australia. Um, you know, back then I qualified in, uh, in science. So I'm actually um, a science major in um, chemistry and geography, but decided that uh, project management was more my forte. So I've um, been with MineRP for about 13 years now, senior project manager there. Um, and I started my career in the development teams, you know, um, and then transitioned into implementing our enterprise solutions uh, when we first started with Mindcat STB. And it was around 2010 when Peter Nell asked me to go and implement our first um, international enterprise implementation in Australia um, when I started working with a team here. Um, and now I basically specialize in managing national and, and, and virtual project teams across um, countries and time zones. And yeah, yeah that's, that's my, my background. Uh, Yolanda Kutsia, welcome to the podcast. Nice to have you. We hope to have you on again. So I assume that you kept everybody together being the Uber uh, Agile and project manager to be able to deliver this paper on time, on budget, on brief. <laughs> yes, yes, something like that, you know. I, I just execute. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and to keep two geologists in line probably was a full-time job. Adrian Adams uh, is uh, our next guest and uh, a paper writer, also uh, mining executive in Australia. Adrian, you have a long uh, history with uh, MineRP, but also with uh, South African mining industry before you ventured into Australian um, uh, mining industry. Yeah, yeah. Um, I started out, but it feels strange to say, but uh, last century uh, working with uh, De Beers and Anglo-American and Anglo-American exploration in the mid nineties, you know, when, uh, when I, when I entered the industry, uh, things had just become where you had a choice of going into the, uh, into gold or, you know, if, if that didn't suit you, you could always try gold mining because that was the only real jobs that were around at the time. So <laughs> I, I spent a few, a few years at, uh, Western deep levels, um, understanding what deep mining was about and uh, uh, got involved in uh, some uh, open pit work uh, very briefly, like uh, a, a month. This is very, a very strange story. Uh, I changed companies and, and got uh, retrenched before I arrived, which was quite an experience. But uh, that was the, the way gold mining was at that, at that stage. And um, then I was involved in, in deep level shaft sinking, um, putting down the, the deepest single lift shafts in the world. Spent some time working for myself. Uh, in anything from platinum, coal, um, exploration, uh, nickel in South Africa and Australia, and then uh, joined Anglo-American Platinum for a while, dealing with drilling systems and then um, eventually looking at all of the mine technical systems across all, all the operations at that, that time, uh, all 17 of them. It's a, it's a bit smaller now. And then find myself back in Australia with, with MineRP, doing a project managing copious amounts of block models, as it turns out. And that was probably about <laughs> nine years ago now. Wow. Adrian, uh, you're also running the, the largest uh, minor P, uh, set of data for, a, for and with a client. So, so uh, I think you're fully qualified to have written this paper. MP, um, what an interesting team. And uh, no wonder this, this paper is of the quality it is. Uh, take us through the, uh, through the proceedings, MP. Yeah, thanks, John. Absolutely. I look at the title of the paper and it's, it's very audacious. It says, why use block models, which is, you know, almost blasphemy to 
we'd say something like that. And then with a subtitle, a game-changing approach to resource modeling. That is quite a daring uh, subtitle there. I'm going to ask you, Adrian, uh, what's so game-changing about not using block models? And, and how did you guys come up with this idea? Maybe you, you can talk about that. Or, or just uh, start off by giving us a, a, a thumbnail sketch of what this paper is about. Well, well, since we're talking about nails, I mean, sometimes when the only tool you have is a hammer, you know, every problem looks like a nail. And <laughs> in, in, in mining, sometimes sometimes that's that's what happens. You know, um, the answer becomes we've always done it like this. You know, so mm. Why would you not consider something different? Well, because we've always done it like this. And sometimes that closes down exploration of different um, approaches to problems. So, um, and that's why we thought we'd use a, a confronting uh, title, because we're not suggesting that um, our approach is necessarily applicable in every circumstance, but there are definitely areas, especially with low data densities, where block models may not be the best method for, for estimation. But what's really yeah. good about uh, applying um, that thinking to the, the edges of, of the problem, you know, where, where data density may be an issue, is that eventually you might be able to apply those techniques everywhere because you get other advantages like um, computing power increases to, to make it possible for you to apply the technique into the areas where you thought it wasn't necessarily applicable or fast. So because we spent so much time um, in Australia dealing with our clients and and lots and lots of block models, there are areas where they may not necessarily be the best way of representing the geology. And, and that's mm -hmm. where we started thinking about, maybe we should explain a little bit more about why that may be the case. And, and that sort okay. of under, underpins us saying, well, look at the, the duplication that happens. People have wireframes to define an area, then they fill it with blocks. And then they hand it on to a client, a planner, for instance, and one of the first things the planner does is uh, refactor the blocks and then turn them back into wireframes and then work with those. <laughs> we sort of looked at this and said, well, you know, maybe there's certain instances where you could factor things to stick with a simpler shape, stick with the stick mm. with the wireframes, describe them in different ways, format them to make the, the life of the consumer, the, the downstream mm. user easier, and maybe get a, a better, faster, quicker, less complex result that way. And that's really what our paper is about. MP, it sounds like heresy. I call heresy. <laughs> well, I mean, you're right, uh, Adrian, that, uh, of course, what, you know, using wireframes to represent all bodies is not new in itself, but it is this back and, and forward between wireframes and block models that has the potential to lose a lot of data and and just add to the complexity of the process. So, uh, Yolanda, maybe I can ask you about your approach in the development of this paper. Yep. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because that is a fairly new way of uh, approaching things for MineRP as well. So, so like Adrian said, you know, when we came up with this idea, it was really on the back of having worked with um, one of the world's largest mining companies in resource geology for a really long time. And we, you know, which has given us a lot of insights into the problems they're facing. And right. also at the very same time, we just got off a resource, a live resource modeling challenge where we did a lot of work with artificial intelligence and machine learning. And that got us thinking and asking the question, why? You know, why are we not challenging the status quo? Why are we not using AI and ML more in the mining industry? You know, the ability to produce great estimates without 
uh, block model exists, you know, and we should be pushing that paradigm with our clients. When we approach this paper, you know, because it's really Adrian that uh, initiated the topic with his uh, vast experience, we decided, look, let's, let's try this issue-based consulting approach that Monarchy uses. And Adrian guided Hannah and I um, and how to structure our arguments and, and how to, you know, um, really make sense of it all. And we were able to put it down in a paper that I think is relatively easy for people to understand an extremely complex topic. So Yolandi, for you, it was not only about the, the actual subject matter, but also about the way in which we think about using technology to, to add value and to solve specific problems, right? Yes, that's, that's right. I think we need to ask the question why a lot more. You know, we don't ask that enough um, of our clients sure. and ourselves. Now, you've introduced the, top, the topic of AI or artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, we are going to have to come back to that uh, later on uh, because that's uh, a topic that lots of people talk about, but very few people understand in enough detail, which is maybe one of the reasons that it doesn't get used enough. But let's, let's jump into the, the paper itself into more details. Uh, Jean, there are four major sections in, in this paper, one uh, describing why wireframes are more accurate at defining geometry. Adrian has touched on that. And then looking at why it's quicker to do it this way, less restrictive and, and, and more complex. Do you want to jump into a bit more detail? Adrian told us uh, why wireframes. Yulandia, um, uh, in the sake of time, why did you continue telling us about why are they more accurate and why are they quicker? So when it comes to wireframes versus block models, um, block models, you know, to process a block model takes a lot of time, uh, specifically because they're obviously um, extremely large in, in most cases, but also in the current workflow, what's happening is the geologists, they will fill up their wireframes with block models. They'll estimate the grade into those blocks, and then the planners will turn those blocks into wireframes. And that whole process is extremely laborious and, and unnecessary steps. So generally, the processing of these block models with the, length, um, the lengthy times compared to, to the wireframes adds complexity. It adds um, risk to the organization. And when we have things like um, AI and ML estimation methods that can take into account the spatial relationships where um, block model estimation techniques like Kriging take multiple steps to do the same thing, um, I think it's we should really be using those techniques rather. So if I can jump back in there, um, just to, to add something to that, it's, 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 it's also sometimes people get into a set workflows and they don't necessarily revisit the, the the inputs and and what was really good about our exposure to the the AI type techniques was how it was very closely linked to to first understanding your basics you know why you'd have things that are the same the and why domaining was important and uh, and those type of things and, and how you could predict uh, domains so approaches approaches that were trying to get to the same answer but in, in a lot a lot quicker and faster and newer newer ways and that was that that was quite attractive um, and especially seeing um, with the work that we were doing that we could begin to see that the that the answers actually made sense you know that the, the the answers appear to be able to to mm. to uh, properly model the outcomes oh. you you were after so so that was really informative for us Adrian why don't you continue on why are wireframes less restrictive? 
Well, one one of the, the biggest things is that um, there's less uh, reprocessing required with wireframes. Well, while you may need to produce more um, and, and different types of, of wireframes, defining different areas than it used to before, you don't necessarily have to change them as much or reprocess them as what happens when when block models are passed passed around, especially when block models go from from geology to planning. Um, there's there's reblocking and um, there's there's lots of issues that can happen in that process. You know, averaging, um, smearing of of boundaries and so on. Um, but uh, and 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 people sometimes uh, get you know fall into the black box uh, uh, scenario where you know something's been written to to do a, a reprocessing and people don't really uh, validate that it hasn't uh, changed the character mm. of what they're dealing with. So um, you know uh, not not having to reprocess process your fundamental data as many times is is really. Is, is really important because one, uh, it, it saves time, and two, it saves it saves energy, right? And also it reduces risk because you know that it's less likely that an unforeseen or unexpected change has been introduced into your data. Mm. And I and I think uh, we get later to why MineRP has an opinion about this. But um, when you have standalone tools for the workflow and each of the specialist areas, uh, you wireframe block model, block model, wireframe block model. And the tools does it like that. And the tools almost are persisting that workflow for us. Anna, why are wireframes less complex? And uh, tell us about the application restrictions and the platforms around it. Going on from what Adrian was saying as well is um, to process a block model, you need specialized software, which can be expensive. Um, you require training, not Every software package handles a block model in the same way as another. So you might encounter issues with your data when transferring from one to another. Um, whereas to process a wireframe, all you really need is a CAD engine. So if we look at the MineRP platform, um, we can actually unlock some of those restrictions using the platform because it can digest and process data in any format. So not just from the MineRP product suite. So that means mm. that companies and clients can embrace the new technology and embrace these new ways of working without having to completely change their business processes. Sure. So a quick discussion around why is block models persisting? Uh, some ideas. What, what do you think? Well, I would propose that um, uh, a lot of people are actually afraid of being called heretics. Yeah, which uh, actually, um, you know, in in any sort of uh, creative endeavor, whether scientific or mining or software, is it's actually sometimes good to be called a heretic because it does it means that you're questioning what's happening around you. I mean, uh, Copernicus and Galileo were also called heretics at one yeah. point, and now they're scientific heroes. So, so yeah. I think part of that flows into the answer, which is people don't want to upset the the status quo. Um, there's also a power dynamic, you know, along with these complex uh, software comes... And the software-based organizations probably, Adrian, that, that you can't question the whole because you, nobody is really seeing the whole, especially the larger the organization becomes. Yes, and, and uh, you know, there's, there's also the over-the-shoulder phenomenon. People are, are 
are weary of saying, oh, you're the expert, so you must know. So there's a little bit of protection in that. It's like, oh, no, if there's a problem, it's because the expert didn't do a job. So I don't have to, I don't have to do oversight. And oversight literally sometimes is, I, the only way I can interrogate the data is over the shoulder of the expert while he drives the software for me because the yeah. software's got lots of buttons. So, the, yes. so it's not actually, it's not actually the data, the data and the product, data product is not accessible to the people who have to, yeah. who have to do reviews and, and do and do oversight. So that's very powerful, especially with the Manapi platform, is being able to put the data and the data products in simple viewers so that people can ex spend more time exploring the data themselves. So um, we are talking about standalone applications and the implications of an end-to-end -end integrated platform. MP, there's probably lots of impact on different data consumers in an integrated platform, uh, specifically in this topic as well. Uh, yeah, you know, we've talked about this uh, and, and some of the other uh, authors in our value uh, paper competition talked about the time value of data, you know, how uh, the, the value of data de decays over time uh, as it takes time to export from one system into another system, etc. And by the time that I receive the data, uh, it's too late to use the data to make a decision. I think there's lots to be said about getting the data in a form into a format which is easily adopted, but also getting that data uh, into information in the time that that it counts. Before we end our conversation, everyone talks about cloud systems and and high performance computing, etc. And Yolanda has touched on machine learning and artificial intelligence and so on. Of course, the uh, these computations and the massive amounts of data that uh, working with here requires a lot of computing power. And then we're not even talking about the computing power that's required when we get into design evaluations. One of you want to comment on how we're able to use the platform of the uh, that MinerP provides, as well as this new approach to to harness the power of high performance uh, performance computing and and, and cloud computing uh, to solve some of the complexities here. I know that Hannah wants to jump into this one, but I've got something to to say. Um, and and that is um, look, it's, uh, you know, speed is speed is relative. It wasn't even eight years ago. The sort of problems that we were presented with was, can you speed up this data processing task that's taking us um, days and weeks to perform? And so with the Manapi platform and with our approach, we were able to take um, queries that were taking literally a week, a week and a half to consolidate the data process and give the answer. And we were able to turn that into, into hours and consolidated days worth of computing for the entire data sets. And the data sets mm. are pretty big, you know, like um, three, four trillion tons of material um, in block model. And as time goes by, it was like, oh, you know, it's taking us hours and days to get this answer. Can, can we do it quicker? And, and so with high-performance computing, we're now looking at the calculations that can sometimes take hours, which, which, are re which is really fast compared to the way it used to be. And we're now, able, and we're now looking at and thinking, we can actually get this down to minutes and seconds. Mm -hmm. And we've done other improvements where uh, speed increases, we think, can go down to seconds and, and milliseconds. And what that does is, wow. is is change the focus of someone that is doing a job and uh, takes a huge chunk of time that used to be the, the, the vast majority of what they did, preparing and analyzing and, and collating the data, 
and they spend 80, 90% of the time doing that and 10% looking at the meaning of, of the result. Now you can spend two, 3% of the time collating the data, uh, having it done for you automatically with confidence. So you've now got 98% of your time available to think about what it means to run scenarios, to do different calculations and outputs. And, um, you know, uh, I think the, one of the best quotes that I've heard people saying is, it's not that you're going to need um, uh, uh, less engineers, is that you're going to have the engineers with time to do more engineering. Yeah, and, and less and, data jockeying. And less, yes, and less, less data jockeying. That, that for me is, 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 a, is, a, is a fantastic way of, of looking at, at things. It's like, you know, spending more time uh, thinking and analyzing the impact of what you're seeing rather than actually getting to an answer. And, and that's, you know, one of the key uh, improvements that a, a platform like Minopy brings into uh, any mining enterprise. Yeah, yeah, sounds great. Guys, we, we have in fact run out of time now. Um, and that's what happens when you're having fun. Time just flies. We're going to end off our podcast like we always do. Uh, firstly, let me just remind everyone who listens that uh, this paper will be or a link to this paper will be put into the description uh, of the podcast. So you're welcome to follow that link so that you can have access to the actual paper itself. It's really an easy and a good read um, and very valuable. Adrian, uh, Hannah and Yolandi, we always ask our guests when we end up our show uh, what they're reading, what's on their bedside table. So why don't we start with you, Hannah? What are you reading? Um, I've got a, a couple. I just finished one called Before the Coffee Gets Cold, which is set in Tokyo, Japan, and it's about a cafe that offers its patrons the opportunity to travel back in time. So it follows wow. four visitors to the cafe and each have their own unique experience and learn something about themselves or others on their journey. But um, there's one provisos that they have to get back before the coffee gets cold so <laughs> it was a really lovely book and well worth the read if you ever come across it the second one that I've been reading is a parenting book called the me 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 epidemic how to raise grateful kids in an over entitled world <laughs> and oh um, boy <laughs> Uh, and it basically follows along the same lines as most of Amy McCready's other books. So it teaches parents positive parenting solutions, ways to encourage kids to contribute and act with compassion and gratitude rather so they feel like a sense of empowerment instead of entitlement. So we Well, with, with, with two teenagers in my house, I think I'm going to go for that one immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, we've seen great results with our two-year-old already. So, yeah. Wonderful. Yolandi? So I have uh, picked up something that's made the headlines as of late. The book is called Trump Too Much and Never Enough by his niece, Marielle Trump. Um, it's a bit wow. of a memoir, which uh -huh. she has written, that reveals the dynamics of, uh, or the twisted dynamics, should I rather say, of, uh, of their family and their history and um, the dysfunctional family, the first family. So um, she basically blames their family for creating him and creating this, what she calls is the most dangerous man in the world because of the power that he has. And she feels that it's her patriotic duty to take him down. What makes the book interesting is that she's actually got a doctorate in clinical psychology. So it gives it a bit of credibility. 
And she then goes and, you know, diagnoses him and, you know, tells the world that he's not qualified and incapable of leading the free world. So, uh, yeah, very interesting. <laughs> and here we thought that talking about wireframes and block models was uh, heresy, you know. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Okay, well, now we now that we've gone off the deep end, uh, Adrian, <laughs> why did you jump in the deep end? Oh no, mine mine, mine are a lot less um, controversial. Um, I'm I'm reading um, one of Stephen Hawking's books, one of his easy ones, um, um, brief answers to the big questions. Um, it's it's always really interesting oh. to to see how someone really smart take takes something complex and and and. Is able to explain it so lots of people can can relate to it. So I'm I'm finding that's really interesting. And the other one is just for fun. I'm I'm rereading an old book of mine um, called the uh, uh, the joy of work. You know, it's one of the old, it's it's uh, by Scott Adams. It's one of the Dilbert books. I, I love the oh, subtitle. Yes. Mm. Yeah, it's a uh, Dilbert's guide to finding happiness at the expense of your coworkers. Very very <laughs> very very. Uh, very, very <laughs> I'm trying to say something. <laughs> oh boy, yes. Uh, I, I think uh, I think let's stop the show immediately. You know? <laughs> <laughs> thanks, thanks for that, guys. And and we we are publishing a list of all of these books and and, and all of the readers and writers of the books as well uh, for our, our listeners. Thanks for for sharing your views. Uh, today. Um, and John, thanks for being my co-host again. To remind everyone again, uh, Mind Warp is the name of our podcast and uh, thanks for your time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.